have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Now, as you're turning there, I want to just make a statement about what I am and what I'm not going to be uh, saying uh, in this message here uh, this morning. And uh, one of the realities that you have to uh, deal with as a I believe as a pastor is that you you need to allow a text to have its own voice and to recognize that there are some balancing truths or there are some other things that could be said but there's a danger sometimes of so qualifying everything that you say that it loses its potency. Now in saying what I'm saying about the unity of the church and how we are to view one another uh, in the church and the kindness with which we are to look at others and some of the things that are to buttress uh, those realities, uh, I am not saying here that there is never a time to call out sin. I am not saying, uh, as we even read this morning, that false teachers and false doctrines are not to be uh, identified. There is much in the word of God about being deceived. There is much in the scriptures about identifying uh, certain uh, false teachers that are known generally by false doctrine, by immoral lives, and by bearing bad fruit through their ministry. Uh, and so I'm going to make some statements uh, today uh, in regard to how we're to see each other, uh, and particularly in light of all of us standing before the judgment seat of Christ that's going to be the focus. That's what this text is about. Uh, and I didn't want to qualify it to death uh, in the uh, exposition of it. Romans chapter 14 is dealing with the reality that there were disputes uh, in the church, uh, largely as a result of the incorporation of Gentiles into what had been an exclusively Jewish church, uh, Gentiles who uh, did not have the same uh, scruples in regard to eating and drinking uh, that uh, the Jews had uh, based upon uh, Mosaic uh, laws uh, in the past. And uh, the writer here, or Paul here, is exhorting them that it's okay to come to your own convictions on certain things. There are things that are a matter of, look, this is what God says, no question about it. There are other things believers are going to come to different views on. And that that is allowable in the church. Not all disagreement is disunity uh, in the church. And Paul's great concern is not so much to get everybody on the same page about everything as to help everyone to think about one another rightly. And so in order to bring that out, he deals with the matter of food and drink, uh, the one who is able to eat all things and the one who eats vegetables only. Uh, there is also the matter of the esteeming of one day uh, above another. And then he's going to bring and marshal a series of arguments that we'll rehearse uh, in just a moment. But now I want to pick up the reading at verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would now draw near and help and aid by the Spirit in the giving and in the receiving of the word. And Father, we pray that the preaching would be uh, in the Spirit and the reception would be in the Spirit. Lord, that where you need to convict or to convince or to expose, that you will do that work. Where you need to comfort and to help and to come alongside, Lord, that you would deal with everyone according to their need. And Father, as we rehearse these great eternal realities, in light of the reality that every knee shall bow, Lord, we pray that those outside of Christ would be dealt with today by your grace, for your glory and for their eternal good. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been having some discussions recently on the subject of the character of certain historical figures in the church versus their achievement, especially as it comes to certain very well-known uh, teachers and preachers of the past. What do we do when we recognize and realize that that one who wrote a book or has a theology that was very helpful to you and even very helpful in the history of the church has certain faults and sins and blind spots in them. Does it negate, sort of cause us to no longer read them and to profit from them? Now, that question demonstrates the reality that your character does matter. And this is why the vast majority of qualifications for pastoral ministry focus not on gifts, but on character. The Bible is concerned to be sure with what we do, but it is more concerned or just as concerned, if not more concerned with who and what we are. So that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that great gifts and actions devoid of love, have no reward. And so it begs the question that's been asked many times, not just what do you do, but why do you do what you do? That is, what moves you and what motivates you? In other words, why do you do what you do? Why do you think what you think, feel what you feel, say what you say? Now, in regard to that, we may say or may ask, is there a unifying, governing, binding principle to all of those things? And the answer for many is actually, no, there's not a binding or universal principle that there are a host of competing motivations. Why do we do what we do? Well, because I'm, I'm angry, I'm frustrated because I want to, it's because of my pleasure, my self-love. I do what I do out of self-preservation. Sometimes it's out of pride. Sometimes it's out of fear. Sometimes out of envy. Sometimes out of greed. Sometimes for love. Sometimes for hate. Sometimes in selflessness and others in selfishness. And all of those things can compete in our souls from day to day. Now in the text I read a moment ago, the apostle is pressing a question home about motivation and about the discerning of our hearts. Why do you do what you do? Why do you have the attitudes that you have? Now, again, remember that this is a letter written to believers 
It's written to the saints in the church in Rome, to faithful brethren, and in so many ways we would argue faithful brethren, and yet he is compelled pastorally to ask them this question, why do you judge your brother, and why do you show contempt for your brother? What is it in your heart that produces, not, not, I'm not asking what's in them, I'm asking what's in you. Why do you respond to them the way that you do? Why do you judge them or hold them in contempt? Again, this is a question of the heart. Why are you the way you are? It's very similar to that piercing question of Jesus when he said, why do you fixate on the speck that's in your brother's eye? And you don't deal with the plank or the board or the beam, that six by six in your own eye. Why do you do that? What is it in your heart that focuses upon those things? What is it about us? That's the question we're asking. Why do we think this way? Well, because we often do think this way, because this is often our heart's response, The word of God says we need to think rightly. We need to have certain things that will aid us in having a right perspective about our brothers and our sisters in order that we might have the kinds of relationships in the church that we ought to. And the first thing we saw last time is that we need to have a proper view of the one with whom you disagree. How do you see them? And and the apostle says there are two ways you need to see them. First of all, you need to see that they are the Lord's servant. And secondly, you need to see that they are your brother or your sister. That is, they are by God's grace a part of your family. Now, when you're tempted to judge them and despise them, remember that they're answerable to Christ and they're part of your family. And as someone has well said, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. We then saw that there needs to be a proper perspective on ourselves. Now, this really also deals with our perspective on others. But the perspective on ourselves is the reality of verse 7. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Is that your heart? Well, at least let's at least say, brethren, it's what it ought to be. That ought to be our heart. That ought to be what marks us. Now, again, it doesn't mean it always marks us, but it ought to be what marks us. And we ought to be able to say, listen, as a believer, I have a desire to please the Lord. Now, here's the shocking thing. Someone else moved and motivated by that same passion may disagree with you. Somebody else who lives and dies to the Lord. Somebody else who says that all that I do, I want to be pleasing to him because we think to ourselves, well, if that's my disposition, then you must agree with me. Because how could you possibly come to a different conclusion than I did? Well, again, understand that a person may be moved and motivated by the same passions that move and motivate you and yet come to a different conclusion. Two people who love Jesus and want to be obedient to the word of God, two people living equally under the lordship of Christ may come to different conclusions on how to do things. The third perspective we ought to have, 
and this is going to usher into our message this morning, is on the Lord himself. Jesus lived and died and rose again in order that he might purchase for himself a people. That he is the Lord of the living and the dead. He is the Lord in the li- of the living and the dead. He has the ultimate rights and prerogatives of judgments. He has rights over us and rights over our interactions. And we must bow to his revealed will. And it is this truth now that is further pressed home in the verses that I read a moment ago. And we might call this a fourth perspective And it's a perspective on eternity and on the judgment to come. And so I want to consider, first of all, the reality of the judgment to come. Secondly, I want to say a little something more briefly about the glory of the judgment to come and then an application regarding the judgment to come. But let's begin by looking at the reality of the judgment to come. And it's found at the end of verse 10. Well, why do you judge your brother... Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When I'm thinking in my heart certain things about my brother or my sister, when I'm being reminded of their irritating qualities, when I'm being reminded of their faults and their blots and their blemishes, when I'm casting about in my mind the ways that they have failed me and failed the church and failed the Lord, one of the things I need to remember is there's coming a day in which they and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everybody here, like it or not, believe it or not, this is simply a statement of revealed truth. We shall all, believer and unbeliever, Jew and Gentile, male and female, old and young, faithful and unfaithful, instructed or ignorant, obedient or rebellious, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's coming, according to Romans 2 and verse 16, a day when God will judge not just the deeds, but the secrets of men's hearts. By Jesus Christ, Paul says, according to my gospel. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the apostle Paul says this, in reflecting upon that day, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For, this is what motivates you. Why do you live the way that you do? Why do you determine, as he says in the book of Acts, to have a conscience void of offense before God and man? What moves you? For, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, 
And later we could add and thought and said and yes, even felt, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing, Paul says, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And that's what I'm doing this morning. I am persuading you in the church to live in light of this reality, to be comforted in the light of this reality. Now, this is true as well of of those who are unbelievers. And certainly, I have preached this text with unbelievers in mind, knowing the reality of this. We persuade men. And Paul's going to go on to talk about that, to persuade those outside of Christ. And were you not to die, if 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 you never died and you didn't have a soul and there was no holy God that you would stand before I would not plead with you to come to Christ as I do with the knowledge that that day is coming. I would want to plead with you who are unbelievers in light of this. Now this expression used in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 is the same used here in Romans 14 and verse 10, judgment seat. Uh, Some of you will have heard the expression, the, the bema seat or bema seat. Uh, for those of you of a certain age, if you like the old Christian group Petra, there's a wonderful little song. Uh, you can go rock out to that later on uh, today about the Bema seat. I listen to it today as I walk my dog, uh, reminding myself of it. Uh, a, lot of good, a lot of good lyrics uh, in that song. The Bema seat was used in, throughout the New Testament to describe particularly where Herod and other rulers would sit in judgment. But here the king is Jesus. One day, and the Bible teaches this in other places, the Lord Jesus will gather the nations before the king because he is the king not only of the Jews but of the whole earth. And all the earth is accountable to him. All the people in the world will answer to him. Not to the world and not to you. But to him. And the Bible speaks of books being open. We might say in our modern context, your file is going to be opened on the last day. And the dead are going to be judged according, Paul says, to the deeds done in the body. Again, along with the thoughts and the intents of the heart, whether they be good or evil, that is, in God's estimation. Because there are things in God's estimation that are good that the world calls evil and things in the world's estimation they call evil that God God calls good. And we live at a time where it's very clear that the world is exchanging sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. And we will give an account. Now again, Paul's going to bring this home to us and this is going to deal with our actions and our attitudes and our words toward one another. But in the general sense, Paul says, we're going to give an account. Bible says for every idle word, every lie, every coarse jest. For the saint, that day is the giving or the loss of rewards. There's a divine declaration in the final analysis in the test of fire that this is gold and this is wood and that is hay and that is stubble. 
And for the professing believer, there is the exposure before the world of the genuineness of their faith and of the love of God for them, and obviously the declaration of justification. But for those who do not obey the gospel, the Bible says there will be an expulsion from the presence of the Lord for all eternity. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, Jesus himself describing this event, he gives something of a preview Especially for those who profess faith, because there is a warning in the word of God that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will indeed inherit the kingdom of heaven. And the question comes, did your faith show itself in deeds of self-forgetting love as you cared for even the least of his people? And here the idea is, among the kinds of questions that Jesus will ask, as it were, All those heart-piercing questions that you come across in the Gospels, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things I said, will be the question. Why did you treat your brethren with such contempt when you have been lavished with so much grace? Why, when you claim to have been so loved, do you love so little? We make tremendous claims as believers. Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and we are. Is that your claim? Is that your hope? Have you been loved with an everlasting love? Has the God of heaven poured out his love upon you in the gift of his son? God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. It is by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. We've been lavished with grace and overwhelmed with love. Why, the question will be asked as it were, when you declare... That before God you were a beggar, totally dependent on grace. How did you then become so arrogant and judgmental? And I don't know how to say this without sounding that way myself. But if you've ever seen an online profile where the profile is 1689er or something like that. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. Stunned by grace, and then every tweet or everything is a declaration of how others are beneath them. And I say sometimes, as I have said to some of them, your self-confessed identity belies your heart. You don't sound overwhelmed by grace. You don't sound like somebody amazed by love. You see, when we sing Amazing Grace on a Sunday and then spend Monday through Saturday focused on the failings of others, it belies certain things of ourselves. We must all answer, again, not for our neighbor, but for ourselves. Now, this judgment day is a fulfillment of one of the purposes for which Jesus came and lived. That's what Paul brings out in verse 9. For this, this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. We'll have a little bit more to say about that. This judgment bar is his. 
and it's his alone. Again, I could qualify that to death. Yes, we need to be discerning, and yeah, we need to know truth, and yes, there are dangerous things out there. I I know. But there's something here we need to also see and ask of ourselves. On the final day of judgment, Jesus is not going to ask any of us to weigh in. So it's time for, well, who do I pick? Larry, you're safe. (laughs) Look, if Larry were to move on to another church, a pastor might call me and say, hey, Larry Wood started to come to church. What's your evaluation? Jesus isn't going to do that. I'm not going to say, well, Lord, wait, whoa, Lord, but did you know he, what, what need does Jesus have of that? Now, others might have need. Jesus has no need of that. You see, even when we say with the apostle Paul, it is a small thing that I be judged of you. He who judges me is the Lord. That was not said in arrogance. But part of what, but when we say that, and if we've ever said that, look, he who judges me is the Lord. That's a big deal. Because Jesus knows things about you that nobody else knows. He knows things about me my wife doesn't know, my kids don't know. Nobody else knows because he knows everything about me. He knows every motivation, every emotion, every thought, every word, every deed. He knows all of those things. That's why in some ways this is liberating, but for some this should produce a degree of godly fear. Are you ready for that judgment? For we will all, not just the one you don't like. Man, one day they're going to stand before the Lord and they're going to give an account. And so are you. Yeah, but I'm saved and it's all grace from, you know. Is his eye less piercing or more piercing than yours? Is it more insightful or less? Is his standard higher or lower? Look, you don't need to be afraid sometimes to say, I'm going to leave that with the Lord. Paul's already talked about that in Romans. Give place to wrath. I will repay. Well, Lord, I'm kind of concerned, you know, like Jonah, I don't like the way you repay. I'm a little worried that you might be merciful and gracious in ways that, you know. No, listen, he... It is his to judge. Are his strictures or rewards greater or less than anything you would give? You see, you and I, we will not face the opinions and judgments and contempt of our contemporaries. In or out of the church. And brethren, you need to hear that. The world doesn't like some of our faith very much. Now, they may like certain aspects of it. But there are things that we hold to because God says it that we must be unashamed of. In our generation. And if we do, we may pay a price. Let that price be paid. Because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will not face the opinions and judgments and contempt of our contemporaries, whether they are in and out of the church. The bar will not be the bar of history, but of the king of glory, the one who dwells in light unapproachable. That one we will, we will come to see in our 
Next study in Hebrews is one who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. And here's what is, here's what and can be so liberating about this is, look, whether you live or die, you're his. Live to please him. Now, not everybody in the church or out of the church is going to enjoy that. That's, you live, listen, living to please him, bringing all of your thoughts and hearts and minds. Now, we can say that in a way that's arrogant. Well, I'm just, God's going to judge me. Are, are you ready for that? Under the totality of his word? You please him. You have his word and his revelation. You know something of his person and his heart. Study him and then learn to please him. And I'm going to say here and not others. Now, we'll come back. Paul's going to say, now, uh, uh, Christ did please his neighbor. The fear of man, on the one hand, is being a man pleaser is a snare. Pleasing men sometimes is a sign of grace. We'll get to that more fully later. Be free from the judgments and opinions of others, whether they in the modern language cancel you or put you on a pedestal. If we know who we will stand before, then we will strive to honor him, to please him, to do the things that are in accordance with his revealed will. So that's the reality. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to stand before the Bema seat. Now consider, secondly, the glory of the judgment to come. And it is found in those words in verse 11, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. We need to remember that. Some have said of the Reformed faith that it is a faith that humbles the pride of man and exalts the glory of God. And one of the great benefits of having a right theology is getting over yourself. That you're not all that. And I know we live in a so-called democratic society where all opinions, no matter how stupid, are supposed to, are, are, are supposed to be celebrated. And YouTube and podcasts are choked with men and women giving their opinions about everything and everyone. And they're never wrong and always discerning and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day... Only one opinion will matter. Again, the world will not answer to you. Your brother or sister whom you belittle or judge will not be in front of you. The last day will not be, in this sense, a vindication of you. It will be a vindication of God and his elect. But again, it's not just about, hey, you know, tell everybody that I was right about all this stuff. The last day is not about us, but the one who was despised and rejected. And this is, again, part of the perspective we need to live with one another. We're his servants. We're going to give an account to him. So the text says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. This is a quotation from Isaiah 45 and verse 23. But let me read verse 22. Uh, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, where I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return to me, that to me every knee should bow, every tongue shall take an oath. And Paul uses those words in 
by the Spirit adds to them the reality that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now remember again, Paul's argument just prior in our text is to aid the people of God to not judge or despise each other. Remember, therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Christ died that he might be the Lord of the dead and of the living. Now that lordship is at times denied practically, even among us as believers. And again, this is a text that has, in many ways, an evangelistic thrust. Certainly, Philippians 2. It's a great evangelistic sermon. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You will bow the knee. You will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. You'll bow. You'll confess. But this is not what this text is about in this context. It's about his divine prerogatives. It's about the reality that he owns his people. They are his servants. He will reward and he will expose. He has the rights to do this because of who he is. He is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue out of the church and in the church. And so this text reminds us at times who we are, who our brethren are, but especially who he is. And that brings us to the application, the application of the judgment to come. Getting down to our reality again, what does all of this mean to us? We'll unpack some more of this, God willing, next time. But the application given is on the surface of the text in verse 12. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. That's it. Now, as a pastor... I am told that I am to labor as one who will, is giving a stewardship of souls. And we might say sometimes, well, we're going to give an account for our family and, and, and for all of, our, uh, and all of that. But listen, we will give an account for ourselves. And of what? What will we give an account for? When you stand before the Lord, what are you going to give an account for? Well, we say, well, a whole host of things, Jim. Our thoughts, our deeds, our time, our words, our passions, our lies, our lust, our idolatry, our blasphemy, our jealousy, our unrighteous anger. But in the context, one thing seems to stand supreme. You're going to give an account of yourself to God. Did you love those in the body, especially those were different than you, that you were tempted to treat with judgment or contempt? Did you remind yourself regularly that they were my servant and your brother? Did you remind yourself that, you, that God had placed them into the family with you? Did you love? Listen, why is this so important? Because love is the fulfillment of the law. The whole duty of man is to love God and to love our neighbor. And for believers, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It's one of the great marks, 
according to the Apostle John, to know whether or not we have eternal life. Do you love the brethren? Oh, well, Lord, I love some of the brethren. I love some brethren really well. Some of them are great. But Lord, <laughs> and you know what he's going to say? I know. And I also know you. To love the brethren. Again, not just in those who are easy to love. And let me say this. I'm going to say this. Brethren, we should strive to be easy to love. We ought not to provoke others. We ought not to exasperate others. I have in my notes unnecessarily. I'm trying to think, is there a necessary time that we exasperate somebody? But you get the, you get the meaning. You know, but did you take... Going to give an account of yourself. And in the context for what? Did you judge or show contempt over your brethren? Were you judge, jury, and in your soul executioner? Did you despise them in your heart, belittle them with your words? You see, what if they are the objects of divine love? And you are at odds with the one before whom you must give an account. Did you love those who were the objects of God's love? And what is true of those whom Jesus died for and that he loves? Well, he received them, received one another as God, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Received them and he receives them still. They are in this sense, and I want to again... You understand what I mean by this. In this sense, they are good enough for him. That is, he doesn't cast them off. He receives them, remember, by grace. And having loved his own who were in the world, he will love them to the end. He will always love them. Even if that love and acceptance of them offends you. Are they good enough for you? You see, that's not really the question, is it? You see, we're not loved or accepted because we measure up. We don't wait for somebody to be enlightened enough or whatever this enough, witness enough, pray enough, read enough, grow enough before they are accepted. Are they accepted in the beloved? If they're accepted in the beloved, it behooves those who are beloved by him to love them also. By this, excuse me, but this, this, this love for one another, this great demonstration of the application of the love and grace of God for me, and then how I view others who have also been so loved. You see, that's ultimately what unites us. So in a few minutes, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. A passage in which we are reminded that God takes this issue of how we see and view one another in the church very seriously. You see, there were those in the church in Corinth who, because of their attitude toward one another, they didn't measure up, didn't have the right gifts, didn't do this, whatever. They were too poor or whatever. They didn't like them. And God chastised that. We're talking about chastisement in the Sunday school class this morning. In this case, you know it was divine chastisement. Chastised some with sickness and some with a premature death. 
because they had come to the table with a sinful attitude toward their brethren. We're going to give an account of ourselves before God. And we will answer yes for our thoughts and our words and our deeds, things given and things withheld. And among the things that we celebrate in the supper is the unfathomable love of God for us. The Lord's Supper, thinking rightly, ought to blow us away. I know we've done it so many times. I know we get used to it. I know we get used to the most amazing truths. But some of us will, in a few moments, we will take bread and we will hear the words, this is my body broken for you. The Son of God suffered for you. The Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Paul was able to say, personalize it, and we can personalize it. We're going to take that and say he did what he did for me. And then as the cup comes, you'll hear about it. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood shed for the remission of your sins. And so we're going to remind ourselves as we take, as an individual, take someone loved me and died for me. But then we'll be reminded as we pass to the left or to the right. And maybe you're not going to be able to help who you're sitting next to. Someone with great flaws. Someone who may be irritating. And they may hold the positions that are, in the final divine analysis, wrong and sinful. And yet the king of glory knew that when he left heaven. And he knew that when he went to the cross. And he knows it when he prays for them now in glory just as he does for you. We'll give an account of ourselves. Did we know this love? Did we know this grace? Did it humble us enough to know and to know as I pass to the left or to the right that the same Savior who poured out his lifeblood for me, he did it for them, not because I was worthy and not because they're worthy. Has that love so hit you that it has transformed you? The Lord knows everything you know about them. And he'll deal with them as he sees fit. And he may use you to lovingly and humbly come alongside. Not with judgment. Not with contempt but with the humility that knows they'll stand and I'll stand. They'll answer and I'll answer. I need grace. I've received grace. And I can give that grace to others. Well, let's pray and ask God to bless these things to our hearts. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And we do pray that you would bless these truths to our hearts. Help us, Father, our Our minds can at times be filled with this judgment and contempt. Father, help us to remember that day when they and we will stand before our almighty and worthy Savior. Magnify your grace now in our midst. Eat us, Father, as we sing, as we read, as we pray and eat and drink. And remember these great realities, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.